Open our Bibles to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, our time is short. We want to summarize and apply what we've learned regarding authority from Scripture tonight before we separate company. Romans chapter 13, a passage we have not looked at that many times, but to read maybe the first or the second verse. I'd like to read all the way through the seventh verse and have us see if we can appreciate it, understand it, rejoice in it a little more than we might have previously. Romans chapter 13. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For for this cause pay the tribute also, for they are God's ministers, attending continually upon this very thing. Render therefore to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor, to whom honor. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul is writing this to a church. I hope you can hear the words of God himself as he speaks through Paul. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, period. That is the ordinance and the commandment of God is churches, that every soul should be subject to the higher powers. Remember, there was a great reason for the Jews in Rome to want to object to such a statement. Because they were under a pagan power. And there would be a great temptation to want to rise up against that power. But God would say, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. And these powers here are the civil powers of the Roman Empire primarily. Although the principle applies to all five spheres of authority that we've looked at. There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. The Roman Empire was not a coincidence. It wasn't something that the power of men brought into existence. It was something God had ordained thousands of years earlier when he purposed that the Roman Empire would come into existence and it would be in the days of those kings that the kingdom of heaven would be set up in the person of Jesus Christ and John the Baptist. The powers that be were ordained of God even though they were pagan. God had ordained them. And he goes on to say in verse 2 that if you resist that power, you resist the ordinance of God. And your resistance is going to bring yourself damnation or judgment. Because rulers are a terror to evil works. And if you resist them because God ordained them and put them in power, they will bring wrath upon you for resisting them. If you'll do that which is good, they'll praise you instead. That's the way God has set up authority. You please those in authority, they'll praise you. You resist those in authority, they'll judge you. And then the apostle goes on to say, he is the minister of God to thee for good. So not only should you obey them because you're afraid of them, you should obey them because you're afraid of God, and they are God's ministers. That's why the apostle says in verse 5, wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, not only for the fact that they could get angry and punish you for your resistance, but also for conscience sake, that before God you have a conscience clear of offense before him and men, because you are submitting yourself to the powers that God has ordained. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. Now a third reason as to why you should pay taxes. They are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. They have as much right to taxes as the Levitical priests had a right to tithes. The reason you gave tithes to support the Levitical priesthood under the Old Testament or pastors under the New Testament is because they give themselves continually to serve you through the Word of God or to serve you through the tabernacle worship service of the Old Testament. 
In the same way, politicians have to give their lives to taking care of civil and political matters. Therefore, we ought to support them because they need that support so they don't have to be hindered by the cares of a regular profession outside of their civil duties. For for this cause pay ye tribute also, for they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. They're continually attending to the affairs of government, therefore the rest of us need to support them. There's a, there's a good reason for taxes. Render therefore, for that reason we ought to render to all their dues, tribute to whom tribute is due, that's a tax, custom, that's a tax. If you've ever crossed over a border, you've paid customs before, if, if you've done that. Fear to whom fear and honor to whom honor is due. And there in seven verses, the Apostle Paul sets forth a very strong position on submitting yourselves to authority. We have looked at a number of things. I just want to very briefly remind you of them and hope that you can remember them and rejoice in them with me tonight. We have looked at the source of authority. We've read in the first verse here, there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. There has been a tendency, I'll admit it, and there's a tendency on many who read that, that that only describes the positions. Now, we believe that God is the source of the five positions of power, rule, authority, that he's put in this world. But more than that, we've seen from Scripture that God has also ordained the men that go in those offices. This is not just describing offices. For if it were offices and we saw a bad man in the office, we might not want to submit to him. But God raises up the very man to take the offices. Whether it be a Nebuchadnezzar, or a Herod, or a Caesar. God prepares the men. He, over, he providentially keeps their lives and preserves them and brings them to their office. So he ordains the office. He prepares the men. He providentially sets up the men. He takes them down when he chooses also. And then he moves those men while they're in office. Sometimes they'll be moved to judge God's people. Remember, God moved certain men to make war against the saints of the Most High for 1,200 years and to win. Sometimes it will be in their favor. Or a, a king like Darius or Cyrus will issue decrees for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. He's able to do that. But it's important for us to remember that God has ordained the office, prepared the man, providentially got the man to the office, and then moves the man in the office. And that is something to take a great deal of comfort in. And the Bible speaks of those four points over and over and over again. And it's by our confidence in that fact that we can, in faith, submit ourselves to whatever authority we're under. And remember, the easiest way to see this is just to think about your chick to your parents. You came into this world, God had ordained the office without asking you. God had ordained your parents without asking you. He put them in the office without asking you. And he moved them according to his own will in your life. They could have been God-dishonoring hypocrites. They could have been God-honoring saints. They could have been pagan Buddhists. They could have been Methodists. They could have been Primitive Baptists. God made that choice. And you come into this world totally subject to them. And guess what? You're introduced to that first authority relationship without any ability or knowledge to even question it. And that's the, we start out with that. And that is the foundation for every authority structure after that. Now as I've taught, there comes a point in time where even a child knows enough to have to lie to its own father like Michael and Jonathan had to to King Saul. But listen, those, except, those cases don't occur in this congregation. That would be an exception. In general, no one in this congregation has to worry about such a thing. Those would be great exceptions if we had some King Saul rise up in some home. God has ordained all four, and it's important for us to remember that. Another source of authority that we covered is the fact that if people don't submit, there is no authority. A man just can't take authority upon himself and exercise it. No king has ever taken office and just simply said, Now I'm king, now all of you obey me. That isn't enough. The people have to willingly submit themselves to that king. It's been said all governments are popular. Because if they weren't popular, guess what? The people would overthrow it. 
you have to win the approval of those people that are under you. Once you win it, and once they give you the charge to be their king, then you keep it by winning it and by enforcing it. And everyone in authority has to do that. When a man marries a woman, she says, I do. She really means, I will. I'll submit, and you be my head and my ruler, if the, if the vows have anything in them all, at all that sounds scriptural. And so she gives her husband authority at that moment of marriage. That's part of the marriage commitment. But from that moment on, it's the husband's responsibility to win it by affection and kindness and wisdom. And it's also his responsibility to enforce it by wisdom and power. He's got to keep it. And so it is in all authority relationships. When you hire someone on to be your servant, your employee, they agree that you're their boss. But then it's your job to keep them submitting to you by enforcement and by winning their subjection to you. That's important. That's why there's more emphasis in the Bible on submission than there is on ruling. Because without submission, the relationship can't even get started. All five authority relationships have to get started by a people submitting themselves to the one in authority. And that's important to remember. And no one should ever think because of what I've just said that, well, I can get rid of authority in my home by simply raising up and refusing to obey my husband. Well, I hope he's man enough to remind you and to get you back in the place where you were when you married him. And it shouldn't take a whole lot to do that. Authority is also derived from conscience toward God rather than a love, respect, or high opinion of the one that's over you. Authority is not derived from you liking the person that's over you. Authority ought to be derived from the fact that you fear God and God said submit. It's conscience toward God that makes men good servants, not because masters are likable fellows. Now, that's part of being a good master. You'll deal delicately with your servants. But the source of authority there is conscience toward God, and that's why Christians have always made the best servants and the best citizens, regardless of what nation we're talking about, when they have been practicing Bible religion. The spheres of authority are five. Can we remember all five of those? We come into this world and we're introduced to the first one. That's parents over children. Then we get a little bit older and our father takes us off to church or to the Old Testament worship service and they run under priests or pastors. Then we get a little bit older and women are married off and submit themselves to husbands, which is the third authority sphere that God's created. Then that husband goes off to work and has to submit himself to a master. And then all of us together have to submit ourselves to kings or to presidents, or to Congress, or to whatever the ruling body of a nation might be. We need to remember the exaltation of authority that the Bible makes. We spend considerable time looking at the fact that those in authority ought to be reverenced, and our language toward them ought to be very carefully used in how we speak of those in authority, that God has exalted them, and therefore we ought to, by Rendering honor to whom honor is due and fear to whom fear is due. Parents are to be feared by their children, which is reverential awe and respect. They're to receive that. It's a commandment from the Lord. And we should do that and practice it. You know, someone might think, well, what's the value of authority? If it weren't for authority, nothing in this world would function. It is everywhere. Authority is everywhere you go and everything you try to do. You will meet with authority Someone has obeyed in making things work. I don't care whether it's driving down the road. And someone said, it's not authority that keeps someone on the right side of the yellow line. Someone told me that. It's not authority that keeps you on the right side of the line. It's afraid of the other man's grill. <laughs> and there, there's a degree of truth in that. And I would say, along with the apostle here, wherefore you must needs be subject to that yellow line, not only for wrath or the other man's grill, but also for conscience sake toward God. They're both involved, and God knew that. Didn't he say that in Romans 13? We obey because we're afraid. We also obey because God said we should. But everywhere you go, I mean, when you pump gasoline, you trust that someone has obeyed authority, and that when it says 20 gallons on the pump, 
you have 20 gallons in your car, and in our nation, authority has been exalted in the past and is sufficiently enforced that guess what? You generally get 20 gallons. And it's generally gasoline and not half gas and half water. It's amazing, isn't it? You go to the store, you buy 2.48 pounds of meat. Can you believe that? You buy your meat in hundreds of a pound. Instead of just walking up to somebody who's got some donkey hanging upside down with flies all over it, and he shoes the flies away and hacks you off a piece. And you don't know if his weights are just or not. The Bible, you know how much time the Bible spends about just weights? That man's got a whole bag below the counter. He looks at you, and if you don't smile at him and make him real happy, he's going to pull some weights out of that bag that are going to mess you up financially. The Bible warns about that over and over again. And you go buy 2.48 pounds, and when was the last time you read of a Winn-Dixie, of a Bilo, of a Harris Teeter, of a Community Cash being caught by not weighing their meat properly? Don't anybody raise their hands. I haven't read of one. It, it's rare because of authority. Authority. Everywhere you go, you go to the store to buy a one and three quarters inch, three eighths metal screw, you can count on the fact that it is one and three quarter inches long and it's three eighths of an inch thick and that it will fit the hole that you purchased it for because someone's obeyed authority and they've made it to the property. <coughs> Everywhere we go, authority has value. It's for the efficient running of our society that God has ordained it. We looked at a number of objections to authority that we'll pass over. The last couple of weeks we've looked at the checks of authority. We've seen that God, most of all, is the greatest check on authority. The greatest safety that we have, even facing extreme submission and exaltation of authority, is the fact that God is in charge. God rules over all. God is over all. And with that confidence, we can submit ourselves to authority and trust that God will take care of us. That's right. And we, we ought to subject ourselves so far as we are able until there is a very clear and obvious decision for us to make for God and against authority. It will never be for you and against authority until your life is at stake and then it ultimately comes back to God anyway. Because if it's just a matter of preference between you and your master, you and your husband, you and your father, it's too bad. Your preference loses because that's what authority is all about after all. Someone's preferences have to win. And it's the one in authority wins in all those matters other than where God has already ruled. We looked at all those checks of authority. And last Sunday evening we concluded by looking at a number of examples of rebellion where there was a choice to make between God and men. And always we ought to obey God rather than men. And it's that confidence and courage to do that that makes men great to obey God rather than any man. Let me give you just a couple more examples on that particular point. Look at 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. The Bible is filled with examples of authority being resisted when that authority tried to enforce something that God condemned. First Kings chapter 18. Would you believe me if I told you I didn't want First Kings 18? <laughs> Let's go to Second Kings 11. We can look at First Kings 18. That's Obadiah who kept a hundred prophets of God from Ahab and Jezebel. And he hid them in caves. He was a loyal servant of, that, of Ahab and Jezebel. <laughs> Until Ahab and Jezebel wanted to kill the servants of God, then guess who he was more loyal to? And that was God He hid those prophets. And listen, God has never required such honesty out of men that he had to go in and tell them what he had done. He hid them. And there may be a time where we have to do something like that. Let's pray to God there isn't. That's why we're supposed to pray that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. You hear, you hear what you pray? That, that affairs will be so governed by God that we can lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty and not have to do anything like that. That's what we should pray for. 2 Kings 11. 
And when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the seed royal. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons which were slain, and they hid him, even him and his nurse, in the bedchamber from Athaliah, so that he was not slain. This wicked woman tried to kill all the royal seed, and this woman preserved a little boy from among all those that were slain and hid him with his nurse in a bedchamber. And he was with her, hid in the house of the Lord six years. Why, they even hid him from this wicked woman in the house of the Lord. Maybe in the library, maybe in a closet. Somewhere they hid this little boy, and Athaliah did reign over the land. Now there's the word reign. She's a queen. She had authority. But she was being resisted here, and that secretly by someone trying to preserve Joash. And the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and fetched the rulers over hundreds with the captains and the guard and brought them to him into the house of the Lord and made a covenant with them and took an oath of them in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. The priest of God called in the mighty men of Israel, brought them in and said, I have a surprise to show you. We have a king. Now will you swear allegiance to this king? And they did. Then they took care of Athaliah. And Joash reigned in Israel. There's rebellion against authority because the choice was death or obedience. What do we choose? We choose to save life. And it's important to always remember that. If someone says, when do you lie? When do you rebel against authority? It's either you're up against a very plain commandment of God, or it's to preserve life. None of these have been for trivial matters. None of these. <laughs> Children, you are never justified to lie to your parents to avoid a beating. No one in here has yet been beaten to death. Taking an aside, even if it did happen, it still wouldn't be reason to lie. Because that would be exercising authority that God had in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, if any, if any parent intentionally beat a child to death, they'd be responsible for breaking the laws of this land. But that's never happened in here. No child in this congregation should take leave or liberty with what I've said to ever justify any lying to their parents. You don't have cases like that yet. We are talking about where lives are at stake, and none of you are facing anything like that. It's just for you to understand that while authority is to be exalted and lifted up and obeyed, there comes a time when we ought to obey God rather than men. And that's the point of looking at these examples. God has not chosen those under authority to be the check and balance other than the ways in which I've described. Men under authority are a check and balance in authority by proving all things, by obeying well, by yielding, there are checks in those Bible ways, but God hasn't chosen those under authority to always be calling in question those in authority. In fact, the Bible says not answering again. You know, that's a hard thing to do. When your boss tells you to do something or he tells you you've done something poorly or he tells you you've done something he doesn't like, it's very easy to answer again, especially for certain temperament types. And you know, Titus chapter 2 and verse 9, I believe it is, tells us not answering again. And that is hard to do, but that's what God commands of those under authority. What should we do in practicing what we've learned about authority? The first thing we should do is the ruler should always get the benefit of the doubt. Children, you should give your father the benefit of the doubt. Wives should give their husbands the benefit of the doubt, and so forth. You know, we're to give charity, which believes all things and hopes all things, even to our peers. How much more charity does one deserve who holds an office worth of reverence and who holds an office of responsibility that we don't fully understand? How much charity should we give them in giving them the benefit of the doubt? When I say the benefit of the doubt, I mean you'll believe all things and hope all things, even when it may be confusing to you and it doesn't make sense. You'll believe it as far as you are able and you'll hope it as far as you are able in submitting to yourself to that person 
and giving them the benefit of the doubt that they had a good reason for what they said to you. That is what we ought to do toward those in authority. Those under authority, you know, when we're under authority, we seldom see the big picture. We may disagree with certain things our president does. We may disagree with certain things our masters do on the job. We don't see the big picture. For that reason, we ought to give them the benefit of the doubt. No human ruler is perfect, so all human rule is going to be imperfect. Does that give you leave to disobey an imperfect ruler? No. God has chosen to govern this world by imperfect rulers. Every human ruler is going to be imperfect and has chosen to do it that way. By putting authority into the hands of men, he has chosen to govern this world with imperfect rule. That does not give us leave to disobey. We should give them the benefit of the doubt that they're doing their best. And even when they make a mistake, we give them the benefit of the doubt that they are trying to be a good ruler. Any matter of personal discretion or personal liberty. Now I mentioned that those in authority, their personal liberty overrides those under them and their personal liberty. Now that shouldn't occur in families or in churches relative to moral issues where the worship of God is involved, like we read in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, where the use of meat that had been offered to idols was causing the consciences of some to be polluted. I'm talking about all matters where God has not ruled. If your master wants to change the, the length of time that you have for lunch, that is a subjective decision that is his to make, and he can make that, and you give him that. That is what submission is all about. Without what I'm saying right now, there is no rule or submission. It is submitting yourself to decisions that are not governed by God, in where God has given it to men to make those decisions for you. And it may be different than your preference, but that's where authority comes into play. True submission is looking for someone to tell you to do something that you don't want to do. That's the only time you can show submission. When you're doing something that you want to do, you're agreeing. You're not really submitting. Submitting is bowing and giving up your desires. As God told Eve, your desire shall be to your husband. Your desire shall be to your husband. He's going to be making decisions for you, and your desires are going to have to be his because that's what you're going to get. Same thing happened with Cain and Abel. Abel's desires became Cain's as Cain took his life. But in giving the benefit of the doubt, we remember that in all matters where God has not ruled, the man in authority makes that decision for us. Another thing to remember, first of all, we give the benefit of the doubt to those in authority. And that's hard to do, to always show them that honor by remembering charity, remembering their greater responsibility, remembering that they're imperfect, and remembering that true submission is looking for those areas in which they rule that we disagree with. The second thing we ought to do is to apply any question you have to you and your children or to you and your wife. All of us are faced with situations from time to time where we ask ourselves, how should I say this to my boss? How should I do this? A wife might think, how do I bring this up to my husband? Well, I want to give you one very easy way to handle that. Just ask yourself how you would want your children to handle that with you. That is a good way for you to back up to the basic issue of authority and submission. And see it from a position of you being the one in power. All parents should look at how they want their children to treat them and then practice that toward those in authority over them. <coughs> what do you want your children to do when they think your rules are prehistoric? What do you want your children to do? How do you want your children to react? And once you have that ideal in your mind, that's how you ought to act toward a master or ruler that might be over you, and you think his ideas are prehistoric. How do you want your wife to cooperate, men, when you've offended her preferences? So I want her to be cheerful. I want her to cheerfully get excited about me offending her preferences. Well, that's a tall order. But if that's the order that you're expecting out of your wife, are you willing to give that 
when your preferences are denied by your master at work? Or do you get your pound of flesh out of him in some way or other by punishing him either by body language, facial expressions, words, door slamming, or being a day late in a project that you could have finished on time? There are ways that men punish other men. But once you have figured out how you want to be treated, you want to make sure you treat others that way. Isn't that what the Savior taught us all? What kind of check and balance do you desire from your children's wife? Do you want your children to be the great check and balance on your authority? If not, then make sure you aren't trying to be the great check and balance on someone else's authority. What kind of spirit do you want your wife or children having when they come to question you or to rebuke you? What kind of spirit do you want them to have? That's the spirit you ought to have whenever you question or rebuke someone that might be over you. It's a very simple thing to do. That when you have the dilemma of how do I treat my boss? How should I treat this person in authority over me? How should I speak to them? Take it back to considering how you would want your children or your wife to treat you. The third thing I'd like to say in applying what we've learned, God places obligations on authority. We've seen that. God requires things that of masters. God requires things that of pastors. God requires things that of fathers. But it's not the responsibility of servants, church members, or children to make sure their father's a good father. The primary responsibility of someone in authority is to God because God's the one that ordained that authority. And that's where the responsibility is. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. You know, this basically comes back to that objection we looked at when a wife might say, well, I'd obey my husband better. I'd submit to him more and I'd reverence him more often if he was a better husband. Well, it's not the woman's responsibility to make her, her husband a better husband, nor is it her responsibility to measure his performance and based on his performance, to change her own. She's responsible to God to submit. Children are responsible to God to submit. And the man stands before God, not before the woman. I could run on a, off on a real long rabbit trail here about what I have termed in the past the double standard of the Old Testament relative to men and women. And it's not that there is truly a double standard of morality it's a double standard in to whom a person owes certain things. A woman owes certain things to a man that God never required the man to give to the woman. And so there are differences in the Old Testament about certain things. Like the tokens of virginity, like the test of jealousy, like a man having more than one wife, and so forth. Those differences reflect the fact that the woman owes things to the man. The man doesn't owe them to the woman. The man owes them. The man owes them to God. Because this is the hierarchy. God, Christ, the man, then the woman. And that is the order. And whenever we get outside of that order, we are disrupting the way God arranged things. And it's not going to work to our betterment. Right. It'll destroy us. The man and all those in authority owe their obedience to God. And it's not the place of the wife to be calling her husband in question all the time, telling him he's not a very good husband. If you do this better, then you'd be a better husband. That's not her job. Her job is to be worrying about whether she's a good enough wife or not. And if her obedience as a wife is lining up with what the scriptures teach, that's the key. God will deal with the one in authority. That's why I spent so much time on the fact that God's the ultimate check. God will deal with the one authority if a person under authority will submit, yield, and obey. Look at how Paul put it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said in verse 1, Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now Paul here is describing himself as a servant of Christ. That puts him in a position of authority. And as a steward of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. And what I've tried to teach is fathers are required to be found faithful. Husbands have duties laid on them by God that they're to be faithful to. Pastors are bound by God to be faithful to certain things. Masters are and kings are. But notice, 
Paul says it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Verse 2. Verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self, for I know nothing by myself. Yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Notice what Paul says. I am a minister of Christ. I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. I'm in a position of authority. And it's required of me that I be found faithful, Paul says. But Paul then goes on to say it's a very small thing if you judge me to be a good apostle, a bad apostle, a mediocre apostle, or otherwise, because your judgment doesn't really matter. It's the judgment of God that counts, and that goes back to that hierarchy of authority. Children are not called by God to call their parents in question whether they're good or bad. And for children to sit around and say, well, if you did this better, I would have been a better child. Or if you would do this better, I'll be a better child. That isn't their place. Their place is to submit whether it's a rotten father or a good father. The difference is irrelevant to the child. The child must obey God. Listen, look at the kings we look at in the Bible. You can have a king like David. You can have a king like Ahab. Was there any difference in the submission and obedience that God required? No. Not until there was an issue of conscience versus God versus Ahab. Not until that arose was there any difference. And that is the way it has to be. So that when we are under authority, we should remember that our duty is to obey and to submit, not to be their check and balance, not to call them into question, and not to try to dictate how they ought to rule over us. We ought to obey. And I'm saying something that is very practical and very important for all of us to understand. It is not a wife's place to be judging her husband on whether he's a good husband or not. If he wants to ask her for some feedback, then that's fine. Otherwise, she ought to keep her mouth quiet and submit. Now, if he is sinning against the word of God, then there may be an opportunity to bring something up. And I'm, I'm always allowing for exceptions in what I'm saying right now, but I'll tell you the problem is not with exceptions. It's a rule that people get into of those under authority trying to dictate the terms of how someone in authority ought to behave themselves, and it's not their place. That this, I'm talking about true submission right now. It's trusting God to take care of the one in authority. And some woman will say, well, if I didn't keep my husband in line, he'd just run amok and he'd be a terrible husband and terrible father and all this and all that. Then you're saying that you're better than God at keeping your husband in line. Because I want to tell you something, God will keep him in line right where he ought to be as far as the will of God is concerned. And you aren't going to get him there. It's not your place to get him there. God will get him there. If he is sinning, there is a place for rebuke that's been taught. If he asks for your input, take advantage of it. But other than that, don't try to rule over him. And don't try to get in between him and God and dictate what kind of a father or husband he ought to be. Look what Paul said here. And you know, I've taught that a good master, a good husband, a good father is going to consider the desires and needs of their children. Look what Job said about himself over in Job 31. What kind of a master do you think Job was when God said he was a perfect man? What kind of a master was he? Did he ride around a chariot up and down the rows of corn with a bull whip looking for disobedient servants? What kind of a master do you think Job was? He tells us in Job chapter 31, verse 13. Now, you know what Job does in the book of Job? He defends himself and describes all his righteousness. He truly did these things. He just shouldn't have been glorying in them. He should have said, God is greater than man, and God can do with me as he has, and I'll still bless him. But what he says about himself is true. God never took, called him a liar. God just said he applied things the wrong way. In Job 31, verse 13, Job said, "If I," he's saying, God, God is justified in punishing me if I did these bad things. If I did despise the cause of my manservant, or of my maidservant, when they contended with me. What then shall I do when God riseth up? And when he visiteth, what shall I answer him? Did not he that made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us in the womb? Those are three powerful verses. 
If my maidservant or my manservant rose up and contended with me that I hadn't paid them or that I'm working them 15 hours a day and it's too much and they can't keep up with it, if I despise their cause, that doesn't mean he gave in, but if I despise their cause, what in the world will I do when I try to reason with God? Because God's formed us both alike. What then shall I do when God riseth up? And when he visiteth, what shall I answer him? How in the world will I have any reason or right to bargain with God or to deal with God or to pray to the Lord for his mercy toward me if I haven't shown that kind of mercy toward my man, sir, my maid, sir? The point I want to make is, servant, Job, God. And Job is reasoning very wisely. I take good care of those underneath me because I'm under God. And that's what true preaching of those in authority and their relationship to God will do. Because, how, doesn't it say in the New Testament, we read about masters, masters, give that which is fair and just to your servants because, because ye have a master that is in heaven. And I'm telling you women and children and anyone under authority, there is a God in heaven that governs those in authority. And we've got to keep that authority relationship proper. We should submit to our rulers and consider them as the providence of God in our lives. God providentially has, has made your parents and appointed them and brought you into a relationship with them without consulting you. I, I can't hardly get over that. If you'll just stop and think about it, it will tell you how God wants you to look at authority. He made all those choices for you and it has worked out for his will. Because I want to tell you something. His will has not been thwarted to the parents you had. He had wise ends in the parents you had as certainly as he has wise ends in the kings that he ordains. It is all the ordinance of God. And if we can submit to that and remember that, it will sure, certainly give us a great deal of comfort and peace in submitting to those in authority. As with the rest of our circumstances, when we look at those that are in authority over us, we should ask ourselves, if, if we're suffering under them, is this a trial of my faith? Is this a judgment from God to chasten us? Is this the natural consequences of my own folly? You know, there is folly in certain cases. Someone goes and gets a job that has a terrible, oppressive master. It could be the fault of the man who went and got the job could be just the consequences of his folly. But I'll tell you, if your master is bearing down on you and showing a great deal of wrath towards you, Romans 13 tells me you're doing something wrong. Because, in general, those men are going to praise those that do well and punish those that do evil. Those that are in authority over you could be an opportunity for the greater glory of God. We have to submit to those that are over us with the same perspective of God's providence as we do all the circumstances of our life. You look at your physical health. There are certain things you can't control about your physical health, and you submit them to God looking at those four possibilities as to why they exist. The same with authority. It's no different. It's all dependent on the providence of God, and we leave it there. And by leaving it there, it gives us the greatest degree of peace. We've had storms the last few days. When you see those jagged bolts of lightning and you hear the thunder shaking the ground underneath your house, how many of you, uh, don't even show me, but how many of you are honestly afraid of that? There's a God in heaven that specifically, directly sends each one of those bolts precisely where he wants it. Right. It, it ought not to give you the least degree of fear. Now, that doesn't mean you go out and climb the nearest tree and put an antenna in your hand. That's ridiculous. There's no reason to presume on this mercy of God. But while, what are you going to do in bed? You're going to go in the basement? Listen, if he wants to get you in the basement, he can go through two, two floors of your house easily. You're not, you do a reasonable effort by not climbing a tree in a thunderstorm. You lay in bed and you enjoy it. You shouldn't be afraid of it. You trust the God that directs it in the same way you thank the God that gave you your parents, your husband, your pastor, your master, and the nation, and the president and Congress that we have right now. 
and you trust God to have a wise purpose in all of it, just like in that lightning. Listen, you want lightning coming down in your yard. If lightning is coming in your yard, your grass will be greener tomorrow than your neighbor's. So trust God to send it right down next to your house and lay there and enjoy the vibrating bed as God shakes your place. But don't be afraid of it. We trust God for that. I know it's visible, so we're afraid of it. Sometimes. Human. That's one thing I'm not very much afraid of. There are other things. But, you know, what about your spleen, your liver, your pancreas, your kidneys, your, all those parts of your body that function day in, day out? We, we trust the Lord. We forget about it. Don't we? We just leave it in God's hands to take care of all those chemical processes that are going on in our body that still stagger chemical scientists, biological scientists. We trust the Lord for them. We should trust the Lord just the same in those that are in authority over us. That God is working His perfect will and we submit and obey as well as we possibly can and cheerfully do so and exalt that position of authority and thank God for it and pray for that husband and pray for that father, pray for that pastor and thank God for him. And only when that person in authority confronts us with disobedience against God do we seriously start thinking about disobeying? Otherwise, we leave it up to God. And there's peace in that. You know, some of us come from a background called the John Birch Society, which meant that we were questioning most everything done by those in authority, and does not make for a peaceful life. You're reading the newspaper every day, wondering where the conspiracy is going on, and how it meant that we were questioning most everything done by those in authority, and does not make for a peaceful life. You're reading the newspaper every day wondering where the conspiracy is going on and how it's going to get you. And while there was a lot of good information disseminated by that organization and other organizations, it does not make for a carefree life. It makes for a great deal of care about what's going on. Listen, there's nothing going on that God's not in total control of. And what's going on anyway, you're not going to change. Except by prayer. And that's not Amen. something they emphasized a great deal. They emphasized all the other things you ought to be doing. But listen, we can change things by prayer. We can change things by obeying and submitting ourselves and trusting God. And God wants us to have that peaceful life. Pray for those that are in authority that may live a quiet and a peaceful life. And all godliness and honesty, not worrying about what they're going to do next. To take away our liberties, trusting God to preserve our liberties. God may have given you a trying husband to try your fate. God may have judged you with a judgmental husband. God may have simply given you the husband you chose in your youthful folly. Now that fits the different circumstances that we've looked at, and all of them can be dealt with. If it's your folly, you can confess that to God and beg Him for mercy in the rest of your life, and He can provide that more. If it's judgment, then confess the sins that you're guilty of, and the judgment will be taken off. If it's a trial of your faith, rejoice in it. And say, I can handle this. The Lord's testing me right now. It's just like the test Margaret took, just a little bit different. Instead of lasting two hours, it lasts 20 years. But while I'm enduring this test, I'm going to rejoice in it. And prove to God that I can submit and obey even in a generation where most of them would tell me I'm crazy for doing so. And God will lift that one also. You know what Elihu told Job? Elihu told Job, if you'd learned your lesson earlier, this whole thing would have been lifted more quickly. Go read that book of Job. Job, Job had made it worse for himself by fighting against it. You know, God may test a congregation by giving you a heretical pastor. I may go into heresy and God will test you by it to see if you're going to stand for the word of God rather than subjection to me, leaving you without a pastor again for a while. Who cares? You obey God and his word rather than me. God may chasten a congregation with a slothful pastor. God may judge people by giving them a slothful pastor. They can get rid of that judgment, though, by obeying And some churches simply have the part-time pastor they pay for. Many churches suffer that way. 
Those that are in positions of authority need to take their offices seriously and enforce them. And I want to call upon everyone in here that's in a position of authority, women as mothers also, husbands, fathers, and masters, I want to call upon all of you to honor what we have learned in the last 10 weeks and to exalt the position of authority that you are in. Look at Ecclesiastes chapter 10. Ecclesiastes chapter 10. I call upon all those that are in a position of authority to take that authority and exercise it. You know, the Bible says to ministers, take the oversight thereof willingly. Well, the Lord expects husbands to do that also, and fathers to do that, and to rule their families, and to say like Joshua did, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As Abraham commanded his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, we ought to do that. I read about this evil in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 5. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, as an error which proceedeth from the ruler. Ecclesiastes 10.5. Folly is set in great dignity, and the rich sit in low place. When you put the rich in low place, you have exalted folly. Because the rich are rich for a reason. They're better than the poor. That is, they deserve a position of honor. Verse 7, I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. There is a tendency in our society for servants to be exalted. Labor unions to have a position on the board of directors? That is nothing but a, a mouthpiece for servants on the board of directors of some of the major corporations in our nation. They don't have a right to be there. They wouldn't understand the least bit of what's going on. They're not even capable of making decisions that are made at the level of a board of directors. And it makes my blood boil to think that they're even allowed in that room to see mahogany for the first time in their lives. And I said it that way just to see what it did to your soul. If there's a part of your soul that wells up and says, why, they have a right to be there too, you're missing something. It's folly that's exalted in our society. Verse 6 says, folly is set in great dignity. When they get dignity like that, it's ridiculous. It's folly. The rich sit in low place. And to put down the rich, you know our tax system, everything that's written is we ought to soak the rich and give to the poor. We ought not to do that. The rich are what made this nation. If it wasn't for the rich, the poor wouldn't even have a job. They'd still be living off of radishes and cucumbers that they might scrape out of a little bit of soil here and there. It's the rich that provide jobs for the poor. If it weren't for rich, what would servants do? Work for each other? Working what for each other? Squatting around a campfire someplace with a loincloth on, wondering where the next meal is going to come from. Hoping the wife goes out and beats a rabbit up with a stick and brings it home. Listen, there's no progress without rich men that have capital. Capital is what buys wisdom. Capital buys time. Capital buys the means of production for servants to have jobs. And I'm not trying to teach a lesson in economics right now. I'm trying to teach Ecclesiastes 10, 5, where the wise man said, There is an evil which I have seen under the sun. As Solomon reviewed all that can go wrong in the world. And listen, God gave him insight to see problems. And he said, I've seen an evil under the sun. And it's an error which proceeds from the ruler. And right now I'm appealing to rulers. If your wife takes over the job of running your home, it is your fault. If your children get out of hand, it is your fault. If this church gets out of hand, it is my fault. If your employees get out of hand, it's a master's fault. It's an error that proceeds from the ruler by giving up the authority that they ought to keep. And there's a tendency to want to do that. Fathers want to exalt their children to a buddy-buddy relationship, thinking that will win them. Because that's the philosophy of our age. And it doesn't work. Solomon says it's folly being exalted and given a place of dignity. I have seen servants upon horses and princes walking as servants upon the earth. Princes ought not to have to walk. Princes ought to be riding horses. And servants ought to be walking. That is the word of the Lord. And it's an evil when it's not that way. And how do we keep it from being that way in our church and in our homes? But by you men taking the authority God's given you and not abusing it, 
but taking it and exalting it and using it. Your wives will be happier. Your children will be happier and more content if we do it God's way instead of our world's way. This is an evil. This is an error that proceeds from rulers. I appeal to all of you. It is your choice in your home whether you're going to exalt authority and keep that error out or not. It doesn't get in where there's a ruler that doesn't let it in. Because a ruler has the God-given authority to get rid of it. It's an error that proceeds from the ruler. Most rulers give up their God-ordained power in the ignorant hope that by giving it up, they can win more cooperation of those under their authority. They're approaching the whole thing the wrong way. I've preached ten weeks, so I can't preach it again. They've got to go after those under their authority, win them, force them, in craftiness, beguile them, to get them back into a place of submission. That's the way it has to be. And if you don't do that, it's an error proceeding from the ruler. And that's what's happened in our nation. Husbands have abdicated the throne of the home and given it to the wife. The wife's taken it. Servants usually will. Parents have abdicated the throne in the home, and children have taken it. Servants usually will. They like to ride horses. Folly is set in dignity. May God have mercy on us. Let's esteem authority as God's wise ordinance for the safety and prosperity of men. Whenever we see it, let's exalt it. Let's talk about it. Let's esteem it. Let's glory in the fact that God has ordained something very wise for our prosperity. Let's guard and guide our children's opinion and understanding about authority. Let's teach them from the day they're born that their father is supposed to make decisions for them. And if that's done consistently, they won't know a great deal different if you control all the input to their minds outside of your input and teach them that their father ought to be the one making decisions for them. Teach them that authority. Let's guide and guard our children. We should wisely help one another as we have opportunity. You're going to see things that my children are doing that you can help me be a better father and rule more wisely and completely by telling me what my children are doing when I'm not around. You may see my wife doing things that I might want to know. You should help me. Now that sounds like we're going to turn the Greenville Church into a uh, Gestapo camp. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we ought to help one another by exhorting and provoking and helping those in authority search out things that they need to know. And if my children are doing something wrong, I want you to tell me about it. Because I want to be like a king that Proverbs 25 describes that makes diligent inquisition into such things. I'm not going to hastily judge just on your opinion. Certainly we'll look into the matter a great deal more carefully. And I would like to know that. You know, even Moses, if he was to hearsay that in some city they were doing this or that, he would make diligent inquisition of that matter and see if it were true or not. And if it were true, their judgment would resolve. Right. We can help one another. And I hope that we will do that. We should wisely pray for one another and encourage each other to preserve their authority. And last of all, we need to pray for those that are in authority. We need to make prayer for pastors, fathers, husbands, masters, our bosses, our president, the Supreme Court, our Congress, our mayor, our governor, we need to pray for them and beg God to intervene on their behalf, preserving their lives, giving them wisdom, that we may lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. This world could be a wonderful place. God intended to be, and even after the fall, God intended to could be a wonderful place. And where men have practiced the word of God, it has been a rather wonderful place. Right. America is still a wonderful place to live because much of what I've preached here and much of what we believe has been believed and practiced in this nation. Now, we've departed from those ways, and things are going to get worse, and we ought to be able to see that on the horizon. Israel was great when they were keeping God's commandments, why God told them. You know, all the nations of the earth are going to look at you and say, what wise judgments and statutes they have. And God said, it's your light. It's your wisdom before all the nations. God's given us this. Let's practice it. 
Those in authority need to take that authority and exalt it, not for their own personal glory or pride, but for the glory of God and the proper working of our relationships with each other. And those under authority should look at it as an opportunity to have a conscience void of offense toward God and men by submitting to those that rule over. May the Lord bless us to have authority, relationships in our homes, in this church, in our places of employment that are God-honoring and an example to this whole world that sees us. And may they ask a reason of the hope that is within us because of this peculiar way of living in contrast to our society. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Amen.